Hey, y'all. So today I'm joined by Mr. Joseph Gary Krantz. Mr. Joseph is an author and a lifelong coon hunter. Man, this is going to be a great interview. Mr. Joseph's a true outdoorsman. We're going to talk about his inspiration behind the book, the common misconception of hunters in upstate New York, and what types of dogs he likes and everything. This is going to be a two-parter, but will not be posted consecutively. If you like what you hear here about Mr. Joseph, you can go to rylandcreek2.com, and that being two spelled out, T-W-O. So it's rylandcreek2, two spelled out, T-W-O.com. And his books are also available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere you get your books, right? And you'll want to buy The Last Coon Hunter first, the last one first, right? That's the way to remember that. Because that is the first book of the saga. And the second book is an exceptional hound. And third, so on and so forth. So, you know, if you like fiction, you like to read about coon hunting, please go purchase the book. These individuals that come on here, they they take time out of their day to come on this podcast and share all this with everybody. And they're not coming on here to sell books, right? Mr. Joseph isn't coming on here to increase his book sales. Yeah, I mean, that might be a byproduct of it, but he truly cares about the outdoors and the coon hunting world, you know, and really wants to speak to people and talk about, like I said, that common misconception that people have about New York State versus New York City. That's one way that we can support him. I've purchased a book. You know, I'm on the, an exceptional hound right now. I've read The Last Coon Hunter. I'm almost through The Exceptional Hound. When I get done with that, I'm going to buy Legends of Ryland Creek, which is the third book. But I'm asking you that if you do like what you hear here, to go purchase a book from him. And it would really help him out. I know it would. He just had a brand new book come out, The Forest Ghost, which is number five. It's actually a prequel to The Last Coon Hunter. You're going to learn about some of the characters in here. And it might pique your interest a little bit. So, like I said, if you like what you hear, go purchase the book. Mr. Joe is going to be joining us virtually. So let's go on ahead, get him online. Y'all sit back and enjoy. Hey, Mr. Joseph, how's it going, buddy? Oh, pretty good, sir. And you? Oh, I'm doing fantastic today. I'm happy to have you on here. I'm glad to be here. Yes, sir. I think this is going to be an outstanding interview. If you would, please tell the folks at home that are listening to this a little bit about yourself. Well, that's the that's the question everybody asks and nobody wants to answer, right? But we're going to do our best at it. Uh, I was uh, born and raised here in upstate New York. And uh, I would go into the military and serve the Department of Defense for just about 30 years and over 20 of it in uniform. And then uh, oh, about 2011, I, I came back here to upstate New York and uh, have been back ever since. And uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, good to be home again. They say you can't go home again. I'm here to tell you you can. <laughs> so so uh, I did that. I, I was uh, uh, the son of a New York State forest ranger. So. I'm going to quote your book, The Exceptional Hound, just to kind of give the listeners an idea of your love of hounds, right? So the quote goes, for I have seen the world of men and found it wanting. I prefer the company of hounds. What does that saying mean to you? It's, uh, that's in book two. Uh, that's a, an exceptional hound. And well, it's a very uh, poignant scene where that uh, that comes, that's, that quote from, but but you're right, it has a, a larger, more universal meaning. And I think most those who chase behind a hound know exactly what that means. And even those who don't, 
kind of get it in that, you know, hey, you want to be with your dogs, you you got to bond with your dogs. And, uh, and a bond with the dogs that uh, most people uh, don't have, even with other people, unfortunately. And uh, I think that's what it's a lot about. Yeah. had that uh, saying on Facebook, I got of, of the things I had, I had like 40,000 likes. Did have one person one time say, "Well, that just means you can't get along with people." I said, "Well, you might be right." He's talking about the character. I said, he was, he was, you know, talking about me as the author. But, but I think, like, say, most of those who uh, who run behind a hound or a bird dog or any kind of dog, they understand what that means, and, and it's really uh, it talks about the the bond again between a man and a hound. Yes, sir, and that is a. People don't realize how far back that bond really goes. You know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for hounds. Oh, I, I fully believe that. The, uh, the bond between canine and human goes back millennia. I mean, thousands of years. We could actually prove that, too, in history. But the uh, but the idea is that uh, you'll never get uh, any animal that's uh, more loyal to you. Uh, you know, and that's where uh, I think it comes down to it. That's why a lot of people run dogs is because of that bond and they understand it and uh i mean i've had a up here we've got uh, quite a few coon hunting clubs i know that you have down there in mississippi one gentleman up here uh, mr ernie stevens he's the president of the orleans hound club out of batavia new york and he'll tell you he says it's just hard to put into words but that quote might do it but he's right though i'm, I'm, I'm not taking anything away from ernie uh, but I would say that uh, absolutely that quote begins, at least begins to capture what it means to us. And I even know, uh, again, I think most, even those who uh, don't run hounds would begin to understand. Yeah. And I think something that people don't realize about coon hounds in particular is that that dog has such a bond with you and relies on you so much that it is going to sit there and wait for you to come to the tree. That goes against yeah. every primal instinct that that dog has. Uh, yeah, he's calling you. You're absolutely yeah. right. And it's uh, that's uh, that's another thing you got to try to explain to folks that it's teamwork. And uh, I mean, I had one non coon hunter one time tell me he says all the dog does all the work, and I just sat there and I know I was shaking my head, but I uh, you know, I think I said you know that dog learned to uh, learned to go ahead and chase a raccoon because I put in hundreds if not thousands of hours training him, training him to come when I call him a collar. I, and I absolutely am for training collar used correctly, but I also very, very much believe that your default should be a voice command. So you are sitting there training that dog to come to you, to hunt with you. I mean, if you got a good coon out now, there are, <laughs> dad would tell you that uh, there's no such thing as a perfect hound, right? But, uh, but if you're hunting with a dog and he's not hunting with you, that's a major flaw. <laughs> so if you're, yeah, we've had a couple of dogs that didn't have reverse, right? So so you got to go find them. But most of the time, and, and, and how we actually judge a dog is if that dog's hunting with you. And so, you know, back here, uh, you, especially in these mountains, and especially before the time of GPS units, you wanted that hound to check in every so often. And if he didn't check in, you knew he was treed somewhere. You might not be able to hear him. And that's where you have to begin. You have to know the land. You have to know the dog, and you have to know how the raccoon run. And you, and that's uh, all all part of coon hunting. Uh, my dad likes to say that you're going to learn eighty percent of everything you need to know about coon hunting in the in the first four years of you know hunting pretty hard with a hound. 
He said, you'll spend the, the next 50 years learning the other 20%. And if you ever get there, that is, you know, so, so it's, uh, it's uh, definitely things, again, a lesson learned is you want a hound that hunts with you. And again, that's, that's back to what we're talking about is that bond that is created between you and that hound. It's, uh, and then by the way, every dog is individual too. I can't really do a cookie cutter approach with a hound. You really have to get into that hound's head and to get him to respond to you. And then you've got to understand it and he'll understand it. it it'll, it'll happen. You're absolutely right about that. So what is your inspiration for the Ryland Creek saga of books? When I began writing the Ryland Creek saga, uh, one of the things I was aiming to do, well, I got to kind of reach back into the military again. Because one of the first things you do in the military is when you go to a new assignment is, well, everybody asks where you're from. And uh, the first time I was asked that in basic training, I said, you know, I said, I'm from Painted Post. And, of course, everybody starts, you know, everybody in the room's looking at you. You're in the Air Force. They call him a TI, technical instructor. And he's he looking like you made that up. I said, no, you got, you got three pages in the phone book. Your dad's in there twice. <laughs> Part of my goal is to, you know, obviously it's to talk about, again, that bond we were talking about between dog and hound, but also to show that upstate New York is actually uh, quite wild. I mean, we've got a lot of forest here, a lot of farmland. Uh, the way to think of it is, is, uh, and I, I did some stats for you because you, when you sent me the questions, I said, well, let me go ahead and do a little research for, for you. So New York State has about 54,000 square miles. Uh, to give you a comparison down there in Mississippi, you've got about 48,000. And uh, we have about 43% of the population living inside of 33 square miles called New York City. And that's what everybody thinks, though, when you say you're from New York. And uh, they think they're talking about the city, and they don't understand there's so much more up here. We've got the Adirondack Mountains. We've got the Catskill Mountains. We've got the Allegheny Plateau. So, I mean, we've or actually it's Tug Hill Plateau and the Alleghenies uh, to the west of here. So there's all kinds of woodland, state land, and uh, it's really a hunter's paradise up here. And so that was part of the reason was to, that I wrote the books was to tell them, yep, there really is a painted post. And, my goodness, there is a lot of forest up here part of the state yeah and i had that misconception too i think everybody does especially in the south i mean but then i kind of started thinking about it and i was like you know if you go right below where he lives it's pennsylvania yep what do, sure. what do i think about pennsylvania i think about hunting you know outdoors you know i don't think of pennsylvania necessarily as a uh metropolitan state no uh, um, pennsylvania is still pretty rugged i mean it's yeah. got uh, it's got it's got a lot of a lot of rivers and a lot of canyons. In mm -hmm. fact, uh, the Grand Canyon of the East is in uh, is not far from here in Pennsylvania. So, yeah. yeah, and you're not far from Pennsylvania at all. And that's what I want people to kind of realize. Picture in your mind, just from what I've talked to you about, I can tell that we're not much different, right? You know, oh, we no. both grew up in the country. That was a huge misconception that I had, even when I picked up your books to read it. I said, "Oh man, this is about New York." You know, what I mean, oh my God, you know. <laughs> but I have really enjoyed the series, the saga, and I'm, you know, working my way through them. And it is a great saga, and I recommend it to everyone. I mean, everyone, anyone who loves to read, I, I recommend your book. So, thank you. And I, I read somewhere on your page, the Ryland Creek page, mm -hmm. where someone said that your books aren't as much about coon hunting as they are about people who coon hunt. What does that mean to you? 
Well, that uh, that is on my uh, website, and you're exactly right. Uh, and that came from a, not only was it a non-hunter, that was an anti-hunter. And, and I don't think she was rationalizing because clearly the books t- detail going out chasing a raccoon. I mean, they all do. And uh, but she's also right in that you know there's a certain grit in in the coon hunter, and I think you know uh, some some have had the couple of local folks here say, well, you guys are the modern mountain men and mountain women. We've got just as many women up here chasing raccoons that do men, I think. And um, uh, I would tell you that I think that's true. And how do you capture, how do you capture that grit uh, in, in words? And that was part of it. And, I, you know, I, I did appreciate her, her quote there and describing the books. It is true. It is about a lot about the relationships between the people. As well as between the dogs and people, and 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 the land. Uh, at one point, the the, the land painted post, uh, as you know, the, one of the one of the catchphrases throughout the series is, "Well, it was painted post after all." And uh, and it is a lot about the land. Uh, and I think there's a, again a bond with any coon hunter in any place, not just painted post, that they understand that they understand the woods, they understand where they're going. Uh, we got plenty of swamps up here too, but. And we don't have what we we don't have necessarily have alligators in them like down there water moccasins like you do but uh, but we do have a lot of swamps and though I've been up to my chest more more than one time going after a dog in a swamp so uh, and we, of course we got the the cliffs and everything else and we got it all here so it's uh, it's most certainly a beautiful place got to be careful when you're out here for sure and uh, at the same time. It's uh, it's a beautiful place to be up here and that is again what the the, the books are trying to do was to portray that lifestyle, portray uh, the bonds, the people, and, and what we do <laughs> on a regular basis at night out in the woods. Yeah, and your books do do a great job of that and painting that picture. You know, I love a book that you can pick up and it's described to you in detail. So, you know, I know one time you were going hunting in the Black Oaks, mm-hmm. you know, and you describe the, the scenery perfect. You know, yep. it's just, uh, we don't have, mountains here which i'm extremely glad of because i do not like to climb hills <laughs> but I, I, to me when you talk about coon hunting in the mountains it brings back memories of of well, not memories but but thoughts of an old style of coon hunting back when the the frontier days almost that's kind of what it brings to my mind oh yeah i mean uh yeah the, yeah, the terrain is, is is often we discuss that often in the books or I always say we, I do, I guess, but uh, the books discuss the train that they're hunting in all the time. And we do have a lot of, we have all the different species of oaks up here, or many, not all of them, not not all of them by a lot, by a grand shot. There's all kinds of oaks across the United States, but we do have a lot of red oak, white oak, black oak, uh, chestnut, or also known as rock oak. Now they're all acorn producers. And uh, what a lot of people don't know, I'm actually writing an article now for my newsletter, is that raccoon love acorns. I don't, I don't like a lot of people don't know that. It's like, no, no, when, when, the, when they're out of the soft feed, when they're out of the berries, uh, when they're out of the, the, the corn and the cornfields, so they go back into the forest. Well, it's the oaks that they go back to most of the time, uh, unless you got a bad acorn crop that year. And then uh, you end up, uh, you'll find the raccoon in the hemlocks, which is a conifer pine trees up here that eat the seeds of the cones and that if they can't get to the acorn so but yeah that's all part of knowing the, the land knowing the animal uh knowing the conditions of that particular season we, we've got low blush blueberry we also have huckleberries up here 
Uh, so we got all kinds of berries for them. They, they get blackberries, raspberries. They're they're into them left and right. You'll get a strike out of a blackberry patch in the June July time frame, which is our training season up here. We, uh, our hunting season uh, runs from late October to the middle of February, uh, but uh, training season opens up on the first uh, of July and r- runs through April fifteenth of the next year. So uh, we we can get out in the woods quite a bit here in, uh, in upstate New York. Some folks some folks are lucky enough to have training season year round. I'm I'm kind of jealous that way, but but uh, I guess the thinking is is that they want to they give the raccoon a break uh, when they're raising their youngins in the spring. So uh, I, I guess I can understand that. We can hunt all year round here. We can't we can't kill a cane during uh like turkey season. But I guess that's because they have their young, and you have to have like a special permit to be able to run hounds during turkey season wow. if you're on public land. Okay. Uh, but private land, you can. And we can uh, take coons, which I hardly ever even, you know, do that, really. I mean, I mean, the hides aren't worth anything down here for sure. Yeah, we actually have uh, one of our, if you ever see a map of the quality of the hides in North America, well, the, the I think they, well, it's, Every map is a little bit different, but they had the A region and the one map I was looking at, and that was the best hides. And that A region dips down into New York in this area, so we get the cold that allows the hides to get prime, uh, the best you know, it's the best fur to get. So uh, yeah, it's uh, but I but I'm like you, the hides ain't nothing worth nothing now. So you know, we go out, we're one and done. I do tan all the hides I get, and. Uh, I told my wife I'm going to make a blanket out of it one day. She has informed me I'll be sleeping underneath it alone. <laughs> but but, but uh, Dad set a rule 15 years ago: never to take more than one raccoon out of a tree if you tree more than one. And we've been we obey that rule. But yeah, a lot of times we're one and done. I mean, I've been back at the house at 8:30 or damn, and a cup of coffee because we're done. <laughs> now uh, there, there are nights when you you go deep, and on the way back you'll tree a couple more. I mean, so you're treeing more. Whether I take them or not, that's that's a whole other story, and it's very rarely that I ever take more than one raccoon a night anymore. So I just like running them, chasing them, run them up a tree, look at them. I mean, sometimes we call it annoying season down here because all we're doing is annoying the raccoon. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah, like I said, if it's uh, the hides aren't worth nothing, then and then I just assume just run them and uh, and go from there. Yeah, and I think that's a huge misconception within the coon hunting world too is that people think it's a blood sport you know i mean look at all these competitions you can't even right. kill a coon in a competition hunt you no, know I no, mean, no you can't that's and that right there you, you make a really good point is that all the competitions out there they never take a raccoon all they do is treat and go and, and that's uh the hounds are, are trained to do that uh so they know it. i put it up by tree boss comes to the tree and then, uh, and then he calls me off. I, my command, they call the dogs off the tree is den tree. And I just say den tree. And when I turn around and they're, they're out looking for another one. That's again how you train a dog, but they're so used to that command. They know, they know they did a good job. I pet them up, say, Hey, good job. You done a good job. I'm looking right at the raccoon. Good boy. And then, uh, den tree and we're off to find another one. So I'd say we're a lot of times if it's, if I'm one and done, if I'm, especially if I'm way deep. On the way back, you're more than likely going to strike one or two more before you're all said and done. So, and there are yeah. nights, there are nights when I, you know, I've, I have a certain loop in mind when I want to run. You might tree a raccoon right off the bat. You still want to do the loop. So you're going to tree more than one raccoon in that night, but 
uh, so I don't want to tell you that I'm out of the woods because the dog barked once and I'm done. <laughs> you know, that's not the case necessarily, but uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's how we do it up here, or at least how I'm doing it. Most yeah. of mo- most of the hunters up here are pretty much that way too, especially the competition hunters. They're they're just out there running them up and, and getting their points. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and preserving that resource that we have, you know. Exactly. I mean, it, it, you you kind of alluded to it there earlier is that really the houndsman or the hunter has got to be just as much a conservationist as any other person on the planet because they understand they got to take care of the land, got to take care of the animal, the game. So uh, I can't remember who said it. Oh, he said it, but he said it right. He says uh, he was talking to some anti-hunters and he said, you folks worry about the individual. He says, I worry about the entire species as the hunter. And he, and that was very well said. Oh, I wish I remember who it was. I can see his face. I can't remember his name, but that was a great quote. And uh, he's exactly right. We want to make sure that that the raccoon in our case talking about uh, is going to be there for generations after us. So we are just as much a conservationist as anybody else on the planet. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, uh, the game is always going to be there for not just us, for those who follow. Yeah, and I feel like the hunting community as a whole, on the average, are more conservation-minded than any other groups, to be completely honest with you, or right. at least that's where I believe we have common ground with other people. Yeah, I, I would definitely not refute that. I, yeah. again, I would say that, yeah, we we are very much concerned about hunting lands and uh, and the game on them. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Let's talk about coon hunting in upstate New York. You kind of talked about it a little bit there. Could you go in more detail about it? Maybe tell me, you know, the amount of coon hunters in your area, if y'all have dealt with the loss of land, you know, that a lot of people deal with. Oh, yeah. So, really about, starting about 30 or 40 years ago, a lot of people began posting their land. And, uh, and you should have always asked the landowner anyway, if you're going to go on it, you know, if you're going to go on their land, you got to get the, the common courtesy that, Hey, I'm going to be out there. And a lot of farmers then still now will invite you on there. If, you know, if you start a relationship with them, so you have to cultivate, <laughs> you have to cultivate your, your hounds, if you will. You also have to cultivate the relationship with the landowners. We do have a, a lot of uh, state game lands up here. I mean, tens of thousands of acres in a single spot. Uh, that is, I mean, kind of laugh because, you know, hard to get a coon hound to clean out less than a thousand acres. <laughs> so, so you want to, uh, have, uh, you know, some land that you can get out there and go. And we do, you know, I'm fortunate in, in upstate New York that we have these large tracts of land that we can go on. But a lot of folks who grew up here, you know, they've grown up, such as the ones out in the, in the farmlands, the woods. they know the, the farmers and the farmers are more than had most of them more than happy to uh, have you come on there again as long as you tell them what's going on because they're going to tell you hey i got cows in that field or i got sheep here and, you know, i got sheep farmers up here as well so uh, usually with your sheep farmer to be honest with you they're, they're not going to probably want your dog in there uh, but uh, unless you tell them there and they got them all corralled for the night or something like that but uh, the bottom line is that uh, yeah uh, it is an issue i'm not saying it isn't but we're also kind of blessed in this state to have so much uh, state game land uh, to which to go on and you can you know they're they're pretty well managed and uh, and a lot of good habitat for raccoon and other game as well so how's the coon population in that area well that's uh, I, and that's an excellent question because when i was a, a young uh back in the late 70s 
the raccoon was so high a population that the state of New York almost put them on uh, the varmint list, which would have meant uh, you know 365 days a year. I mean, they would not have a hunting season on them. But what happened was that the price of hides in the late 70s spiked the roof. And uh, and so then you had a lot of people out there hunting and controlling the population and keeping it down. What hurt us more, and it was never the hunters that really put a serious dent in the uh, raccoon population. But around 1990, we had rabies go through this part of New York. We were, you know, they were watching, the state was watching. It was coming up 50 miles a year up to Susquehanna and the Tioga, uh, which are the rivers in Pennsylvania flowing into New York. And we, they were watching it and it hit that a mother nature much more than any hunter ever did, wiped out the raccoon population for some time. Uh, they are slowly rebounding now. And the problem with, uh, with rabies is that if the population begins to uh, rebound, what the rabies comes back again. So it's a very difficult thing to deal with. But I would say now, uh, you know, 30 years later, that uh, we are seeing the coon populations get to a more healthier level. Now, ironically, Last year, population was way up, uh, and the reason for that was is because of COVID-19. And what I mean that I'm saying is that nobody was out driving, and so you didn't see all these raccoon that were hit on the road. Uh, they were living because there was less of uh, the traffic out there. So, yeah, there was a lot of raccoon last year. And, and by the way, that, that population, even though people are starting to drive again, and I'm starting to see a lot of dead raccoon on the road again, uh, but I still think the population's up. I'm catching them on the game cameras and, and everything else. Uh, so. I'm very hopeful that the season uh, turns out good. By the way, we talked about acorns earlier. Last year was a horrendous season for us. I mean, there were hardly any acorns. I mean, it was bad. So right off the bat, I knew we were going to be in the hemlocks. In fact, uh, my hound, Seth, he ended up, I think, every except for one, every one of the raccoon he treated was in a, was in a, either a hemlock or a white pine. The raccoon were in there eating the cones. As that's all they had to eat <laughs> once they got out in the woods, once the cornfields were cut. So, um I guess that's all really part of it. You gotta, you gotta, gotta go to the land, but it's definitely a, uh, a, a good place to come up here and hunt and get out there and run your dogs. Yeah, it sounds like it for sure. And you know, I've always been told my whole life, as far as if you let your coon population get too high in a certain area, that they will eventually die off from something. Yeah, you know? yeah, they, yeah they, they can get a, there's all kinds of different contagions. Temper, uh, yeah, just temper is a big one down yeah. south. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I say that I I saw uh, a young raccoon, uh, kitten coon, clearly with distemper in Ohio, and and I also saw one that like with, I was I was in the Air Force at the time, and they were sending me all over the place. I was down at Robbins Air Force Base, Georgia. It was the same summer, although hundreds if not thousands of miles away, and the raccoon went in front of me and clearly had distemper. Uh, and you feel sorry for them because you know they're going to die. Uh, they just sit their their chest is heaving. They're on their back. They weren't hit by a. They were not hit by a a car or there where I was at it. Not possible to get a car back in there. But uh, you know what was happening to them. So you're absolutely right. Everything's about balance, and that's where the hunter comes in, is to help maintain that balance. To you know, because uh, you know we have taken away a lot of the land when we put up our houses and our towns and our cities so you have to uh, you have to manage the game population accordingly or like i said mother nature mother nature will wipe them out with uh, yeah, <laughs> with quite a bit of efficiency yeah. uh, you know so that's where uh, again uh, your your hunters uh, play a vital role and i think that's a as actually discussed in book 5 is that uh, you can't see the hunter as a part from the game system i just 
blows my mind that people think like, well, you walk in the woods and you're separate from the from the woods. No, you're part of the woods at that point, and you are part of that element that's balancing everything out uh, out there in the woods. So the hunter is absolutely required. It's hard to convince people that, but you know, just show them, like say, rabies, distemper, uh, what happens when a population uh, explodes and all of a sudden implodes because uh, the, the population just opened. They starvation, mange. Uh, we get mange up here in the fox. We had we had a case last year. I see. I saw a fox running around with mange. So I mean, uh, that's a that is a, a huge component of maintaining a healthy population is in fact the hunter. Yeah, and you talk about the effects on other species as well, such as turkeys. You know, canes right. are a huge nest predator to turkeys. Oh yeah, yeah. If you got a you got eggs out there in the ground, and you got a you got a woods bandit who's kind of hungry. Guess what? Eggs on the eggs for breakfast is not a bad idea. <laughs> so, no, I mean that's a snack for them. You know. Oh, oh yeah. They. We, uh, had, <clears throat> we yeah. I was gonna say we had uh, we have had a relatively recent returnee to the forest of upstate New York, and uh, that is the Fisher cat. It's the uh, first cousin of the Wolverine, and uh, they are voracious uh, and. What, how they got, how they came back, uh, the way I understand it, is the state of Pennsylvania brought them in because they're one of the few predators of the porcupine. They'll actually, the only two predators I know of a porcupine are, is the fisher and a cougar. Uh, a cougar will, will get, eat a porcupine. But the, uh, uh, but unfortunately, what I've had a lot of uh, experts tell me, those are out in the woods, yeah, says, yeah, fisher will eat porcupine after he's eaten everything else in the woods. <laughs> So, so uh, yeah, we have yeah they're uh, they finally opened up a season on them in this part of New York State a trapping season on Fisher uh, about it's only six days long but I, I want to say they're they got to be on there like their fifth sixth maybe seventh season this year of uh, bringing them in there so uh, yeah the Fisher is another one they say the predators that you have to control or it'll yeah, yeah it'll decimate a, a turkey population as well although I've heard. Some studies say that's not necessarily true, but uh, I've had a lot of folks who've lived with fishers for a year and say, no, they, they're affecting the turkey population. Yeah, turkeys, that's a extremely finicky animal. Yep. You know, and we have to do everything we can to, you know, better habitat for them and everything, I know, especially down here. So are y'all dealing with any infringements on your rights to free cast towns in New York? Yeah, there's, uh, so we have the New York Houndsman Association, and there's usually once or twice a year that you'll get a bill put in that either curtail or outright stop hunting. But, uh, and usually that's put in from uh, some state legislator that's out of the city who has no idea what, in my humble opinion, what they're talking about. And, uh, but they've honored it. It's never really come to the floor for a vote, although I, they've tried numerous times. Uh, so it's, you know, it's always like there's this specter on the horizon that you're you're worried about that they're gonna curtail that. Um, but at this point, as we're speaking today, yes, you can still run hounds, and uh, up here in the great state of New York. And I mean, I would hope, at least from the person on the outside looking in, that large rural area outside of the 33 square miles where everybody lives would <laughs> would be able to, you know come together if something like that was to happen you know I, I, just for me on the outside looking in i would hope you know I, uh, well I, I i we thank you for that viewpoint 
<laughs> because, uh, yeah, that's the same thing that, you know, we, we've got some people who are very concerned. They monitor that. You know, our senators and New York State senators uh, and New York State assemblymen in this area who grew up in that area, usually they're, they're very supportive of the sports because they know the lifestyle we live here and they know who we are. You get somebody who is in New York City and has never even seen a coonhound, well, it's kind of hard for them to relate. I think so you mentioned earlier the perception, uh, and that's, you know, back to the books. Hopefully that begins to erase some of that perception of, uh, of who we are, what the, the land and the game mean to us. But you're right. I'm not saying that there's not elements out there that would love, if they could, to go ahead and stop uh, all hunting with hounds. But like I said, at this point, uh, we seem to be holding on. Tell me more about the hound that you hunt now and the type, style of dog that you personally like. Okay. Well, I've got two black and tans and a cur. And you heard me say Seth, and there's a character uh, named Seth, the dog, in the saga. Uh, for the record, the character set was written before the real set was born. But, but uh, the strangest thing that's happened is that the real set has become the character set. And that's where I go back and say, well, it is painted pose. So I don't know what to tell you, <laughs> but he has become an outstanding hound. The style of dog I like, I, I, t I tell people I've turned them into old man dogs. <laughs> and what I mean by that is they have a tendency to hunt close. All right. And that's, but that's what I want them to. You know, so Seth, uh, he comes from uh, the Cameron Hounds. His mother came as the Cameron Hound, famous mountain lion and bear dogs out west, Del Cameron's breeding. And, you know, he uh, he's definitely got, uh, you know, the, the reputation of that line was they're extremely intelligent hounds. And he is. I mean, he's uncanny uh, as far as just an intelligent dog, he, easy to train. Dad said he spoiled me. <laughs> because he was so easy to train. I like the way he hunts. Uh, he's a full open. He does switch over on the tree to a chop bark. Beautiful locate. He's, in fact, I, I tell people, I think that dog just likes to hear himself bark. But he's, got a, he's got a locate ball that just goes on for like, I, I swear it goes on for 30 seconds sometimes, but uh, it's, it's, that's exaggerating. But uh, but he does have a, a beautiful locate. I know I, when I hear that, I said, he's going to come down on that tree right there. If I was your age, I wouldn't mind if that dog was over the next hill, over the next mountain. I would just, you know, climb up there. To me, uh, they pretty much when they get about 500 yards and, it, and he's not struck anything, he'll come back and check in. I've had him uh, literally because he knows the areas we hunt so much, and he and will come to a fork in the road or you know a fork in the trail, I should say, and he'll actually wait for me at that fork and to say, because sometimes we go to the left and sometimes we go to the right. Well, he hadn't struck anything yet. He wants to see which way I'm going. He's actually literally waited for me. And then once I start going down one fork or the other, then he'll run ahead of me and he's outside my, my uh, headlamp beam again. So uh, again, but that's your, you're back to that bond. Right? You and that dog are hunting as a team and he is just, uh, you know, he knows I'm going to go get him. I will tell you a mistake I made last year. I don't think you can't still make mistakes. I don't care how long, but he treed one. And uh, it was I was already 900 yards in the truck. I hunt alone, by the way, and, I, and it was snow and ice. And so I'm, I got back in there, and I got back to a part of the creek where I looked down. I said, holy moly, I said, I'm going to need a rope to get down and an elevator to get up. But by the way, the crow flies, he was probably only 80 yards away. But by the way you had to travel, he was over 200 yards away because it was so steep down there. And I thought to myself, I said, well, I could either go up, stream uh or i couldn't see downstream where the 
the gully ended. I said, so I thought, well, I, if I go upstream, maybe 200 yards and come back. But instead, I said, you know, I'm going to call them off. We, you know, in fact, we'd already had a raccoon. That's me, the one and done thing, but you struck another one. And I recalled him. And that messed him up for a while because he knew he had the raccoon. And I kind of broke, broke the contract. You know, uh, he said, I treat the raccoon. You've always come, but you didn't come that time. So that messed him up for a couple of weeks. I seen that in his head. It's like, what am I supposed to be doing? Again? Uh, you know, lesson learned. You know, you have that contract, if you will, with your, your hound and you got to honor your end. Uh, and I, I felt I really, I messed up. I did him wrong that night. And that was my fault, not the dog's fault. In fact, yeah, there's usually on any given night, if there's any mistakes made, it's 90% of them are on me. <laughs> so, so, uh, I don't blame the dog. You know, I blame myself for either taking them where I know the raccoon or taking them too early. And I know the raccoon aren't running yet. It's just different things you learn about your dogs and how you watch them. Oh, as they do too. They grow just like a kid, and you watch them learn better. You're you got this young dog bandit right now, don't you? Yes, sir. That's yeah. the dog that I'm hunting right now. Yeah, he's a walk around. Yes, sir. Yes, you know, uh, Seth is a he's yeah. You know, his mother was a blue tick, and his father was a black and tan. He came out a cur, <laughs> well, which is from that line. You know, uh, now Del Cameron's line were all blue ticks, but yeah, uh, but half of the litter was black and tan, and the other half was cur, no blue ticks. And uh, it was just, okay, uh, you know, we're looking at it. We, we know what happened. That's, that's what made us do the research into his bloodline. I said, how, what, what happened here? And I, when I say that is because when we got his mother, uh, we got her out of Missouri, and uh, uh, they told us she might be pregnant. Oh, really? Because they bred her, but they didn't think she caught. She was such a big hound. Uh, her, na her name was Maggie, and uh, as a blue tick hound, a female, she went 100 pounds. She was huge, biggest female we ever had. And, um, I mean, she was just this huge hound. And, in fact, I, had, I brought a, a friend of ours who's in his 80s, and he looked at her, and he says, that's a female? I said, yeah, that's a female. But as it is, she was pregnant, and uh, and she uh, had it. I was telling Dad, my dad can't walk anymore, but when, um, not, you know, he can't get out. And I would, I take care of the hounds every day. And I said, Dad, she's lactating. And he goes, Oh, it's just a false pregnancy. Well, it, then I got a call at work and he said, eh, we had, his mom went out there and counted. So yeah, we got uh, seven pups. <laughs> so, okay. And that was where Seth, the real Seth uh, was born, uh, was out of that. So a little, little story behind the story. If you will. But I would tell you that uh, in the original, as I said, the original character, Seth, in the first book, The Last Moon Hunter was a walker hound. And uh, my mother said before the book went to publishing, uh, says you got to change it back when Seth was just a pup. She says you got to change character Seth to a black cur. And I said, okay, always listen to your mother. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, and the rest is history. And uh, and I've never regretted that because I get to use Seth on the covers now. So that uh, that worked out real well. <laughs> so, and when you're talking about a cur, people. So people don't get it confused. You're not talking about like a mountain cur. You're talking no. about kind of a mixed dog. Yeah, exactly. Turned out black. Yeah, because I was going to ask you that because I was like, man, you know, in the book, the King of Hounds, he's a cur. Yep. Or what I thought of as a cur, and it, it makes sense now when you talk about he's an ex-bred dog, because when you're talking about a cur in the book, I was thinking a mountain cur. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was, yeah. And now with Dale Cameron's line, did you actually read his book? Yes, yep. As I have, yeah, the call the hounds, and mm -hmm. uh, you want to talk about a, a just a 
man who was just tough grit. I mean, out there in the Rocky Mountains by himself, way back in, chasing mountain lions, grizzlies on occasion. But if you read it, though, he originally started coon hunting back in Ohio. Mm-hmm. That's where he, where he started from. And then he, he went out west. But uh, just a, an incredible man. He died just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was just uh, a legend in, in everything else. And he created a strain of hounds that, uh, well, it's it's uh, still continuing to this day, even though he's yeah. gone. But, uh, yeah, he uh, he was just a tough, tough hunter out there in the, in the Rocky Mountains. And, uh, yeah, as you, you could, by the way, you were talking about he, as you know, he, at the end, towards the uh, end of his life, he was bemoaning all the changes he saw in the laws and the territory and the road systems out there. And I think that's, you know, back to your question, you know, are you seeing things change? And the answer is, yeah, you're seeing them, but you know, it's still pretty good. I wouldn't, wouldn't overly complain about it. How many nights a week do you get to hunt now? Well, uh, normally I'd like to get out three times a week because I'm rotating the different hounds. The old hound, Buck, he's getting up there in age, but he can still tree a coon. Uh, and the, I got another dog, Boone, he's a black and tan. He's He's got a lot of learning yet to do. And he did show me something a couple nights ago, or a couple, well, last week. Uh, he showed me something that I said, okay, he's going to make it. But I think I really got to put a lot of one-on-one time with him where he gets used to going out there and, and running his own track. I, yeah, he'll, uh, if you will, he gets a little lazy. He let the other dog, other dog, either Seth or Buck, do all the heavy lifting. He's got a beautiful mouth, but he's just got to learn to run that track by himself. So I said, I think I'm going to be putting a lot of time with him alone uh, this season just to get him out there and force him to, you know what, ain't nobody else going to treat that raccoon but you because you're the only one here. So I'll be doing that. But I try to get out. This uh, this summer has been, I mean, our, our season opened up against 1 July, and between the heat and the rain we've had up this year, uh, it's been very hard to get out there. But I try to get out there two to three times a week, minimal. Uh, during the hunting season, when it, when it kicks off those first three weeks, we'll probably hunt every night. Um, you know, ro- again, rotate the dogs so they get the rest. But, uh, yeah, we get out there. Uh, and you do that because after that, you had deer season hit. And we do not like running uh, the dogs uh, at night, just in the off chance. I've never had to leave a hound in the woods in the last 15 years. Uh, well, I'll take that back. We did lose one sheep. And we had the GPS. The GPS uh, in this mountain, it just effectively malfunctioned i went to where the gps was and she wasn't there and it was it, according to the gps i was standing on top of her she we did find her a couple of days later treeing a squirrel guy called us hey you've got your dog out here she's treeing a squirrel it's okay so that that was uh, that's maybe 10 12 years ago now. time flies but uh but, but again of course during deer season you don't want to have your dog out there with, with a bunch of deer hunters may not appreciate your dog running around them so yeah, we kind of first week or two of deer season we have very long deer seasons up here uh, we go ahead and kind of cut them back after the uh, after thanksgiving most of the deer hunters who have were out there have already or who were hunting have already filled their tags and uh, then we feel a little bit more comfortable but i still keep them close hold and i would never leave the woods uh, without that dog i would <laughs> yeah i don't care if the sun come up i'd be still looking around if yeah, during deer especially during and GPS calls have really changed that for us. It's made it safer for the hounds. Right? Oh, yeah. Again, when I was a kid, we didn't have the GPS units. I mean, I was out there with a two-cell flashlight. You learned to go ahead and turn that flashlight off or you'd be walking in the dark before it was all over. But the GPS units, to me, I would not go out there without them. 
now because it does add that extra sense of security. You know, you know how far the dog away if a dog is barking or not. If you can't hear them, because especially in these mountains, that can happen. The GPS is going to point you in the right direction. You can look at the terrain between you and them. If you don't know, it should know the terrain, but the distance and everything else. So yeah, the GPS unit has been a, a godsend in many ways uh, for the coon hunter to make sure they, they can control that hound and know where that hound is at all times. Well, most of the time, as I said, sometimes, sometimes the technology fails. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. And, uh, especially where you're at, if you get in mountains and stuff, I know that it can be a little flaky. Yeah. Yeah. We get, I call satellite bounce and that's just, just my term. Uh, but I'll, you know, a dog is, you know, according to the GPS, one minute he's 50 yards from me and the next minute he's 500 yards from me. Well, because of where we are and everything else and the down in those, those steep ravines, signal can't get to you. So it was just holding where they knew the dog was last. And then you come out and see that dog's 500 yards. That's a little bit of a shock to you sometimes. Yeah. You, know, you, know, you, know that, you know that dog couldn't have got there, you know, couldn't cover that, that distance that short a period of time. But, but that happens, and you just got to be prepared for that. Are the places in your book that you write about Nathan hunting, for those who don't know, Nathan is the main character in, what, the first three books? Well, he, yeah, Nathan is, uh, well, yeah, he's in Last Cooner. He's in An Exceptional Hound. So uh, I'd say the first two books, he's he's a he's one of the primary characters. It's a family saga, so it's hard to say who's the main character. Yeah. I get that all the time. So, well, yeah. is, it, is it Jacob? <laughs> is it is it yeah. Nathan? But the places that Nathan hunts. Wow, that's a great interview. And if you'd like to find out more about Mr. Joseph and the Ryland Creek saga, go to www.rylandcreek2 which is to be spelled T-W-O.com. And you can find out more, and you can also purchase a book from them. There's five of them. I've read the first two. I'm, well, I'm almost done with the second one. So working my way through that, and they are great books, really great family values, and I believe everyone would enjoy them. If you want to, go pick one up. So one thing that we didn't talk about in this episode, but we actually talked about in the part two, the book is meant for adults. Now, it's because it has a little bit of violence in it, but it's really nothing major, and we talk about that in the second part, but parents, be advised that Mr. Joseph does recommend that you read the book first and then base your decision to let your kids read it on you. But someone that's, like he says, and I'm quoting him, 17, 18, I mean, yeah. And it is more of an adult read book as far as the way it's written, or the not the words, but the way it's written, right? So... I think we can all tell the difference in a a children's book versus, you know, something else. But it's a great saga, and I do encourage everyone to get one. The first book is The Last Coon Hunter. Make sure that that is the one that you get if you do want to start the book. Because he's had people that didn't pick up the first one, right? The second one is An Exceptional Hound. So make sure to get The Last Coon Hunter first. It's weird. I know it's the last one first, but that's the easy way to remember it, right? If you like what you heard here, find us on Facebook and Instagram at Coon Hunting You. Also, go to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and review. It really helps us out. And until next time, y'all have a wonderful day.